Uh, But we're going to pray, we're going to ask God for his help uh, as we come to his word. Please join with me as I pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much that you're the God who speaks. Uh, Your word is true, your word brings life, your word is food for our soul. So please help me now in my weakness to speak it clearly and faithfully as I should. And please help all of us, Father, to grasp the greatness of our Lord Jesus that we would know him, trust him, enjoy him, and live for him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We are never as safe as we think we are. Uh, That was the reflection of one reporter uh, a month ago when we celebrated or remembered the 20th anniversary of the September 11 attacks on New York. As those famous images of the trade centres full of fire filled our screens... We were constantly being told that these events changed the world. And I think they probably did. Now, I can remember watching the events unfold at t- on TV at school, uh, really not grasping how big and horrific it really was. We are never as safe as we think we are. But is that right? Uh, in a way, I think our world is somewhat obsessed with the idea of being safe. During this pandemic, we've constantly asked or been told what is safe. It was the slogan of our government last year, stay safe, stay open. Is it safe to open up, safe to gather in big groups, to have visitors to our homes, safe to travel, or even safe to take the vaccine? But our love of safety goes well beyond this pandemic or even our health. We have safety ratings for our cars, cyber safety to protect our privacy, insurance for our financial safety, cameras to keep our houses safe, and the list goes on. We want to be safe. It is instinctive to us, like locking our house or our car. And while I think these are good and right things that we as believers should use and be thankful for, the consistent message of Scripture, of God's word, is that no one is as safe as God's people even when we live through frightening and uncertain times. Psalm 125 says this, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. But I imagine that for those one and two kings was first written to, For God's people, for Israel, living in exile in Babylon, taken from their homes and their city destroyed, they were feeling far from safe. And these books are designed to lift up their eyes to see the greatness of their God and all that comes from trusting in him, to see their security in him, whatever the situation, which is exactly what our passage does tonight, but in ways we might not expect as we see God's care, God's presence, and God's mercy. You can remember last week, we're fresh off the healing of Naaman, the enemy's general from Aram in chapter 5, and before coming to the blinding of the whole Aramean army in verse 8 following, we have this small, unexpected, perhaps even trivial provision in verses 1 to 7. So hopefully you've got your Bibles open at 2 Kings 6. Uh, In verse 1, we meet the company of prophets. Remember, these are like a little Bible college group that we met back in chapter 2, one of the many, it seems, that Elijah had set up in his final years. 
And there's been encouraging growth, so much so that they come to Elisha in verse 1 because they've outgrown their classroom. Uh, They want to expand and like all good church groups, rather than pay the professionals, they hold a working bee. And it's all hands on deck. Verse 2. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole, that is like a, a log of wood, and let us build a place there for us to meet. And so they head to the Jordan, they persuade Elisha to come along with them in verses 3 and 4, and you can picture the scene, right? They put down their Bibles, they put down their theology books, their soft little keyboard fingers wrap around the axe handle, and in verse 4 they begin to cut down trees. And I think what happens in verse 5 is actually quite familiar to us. It's the kind of thing that would go viral on YouTube. This young, clueless prophet swings his axe, the head flies off, smashes the windscreen of the car, then plops into the river, which is then met with an eruption of laughter by all those involved. Except it isn't. The man cries out, Oh no, my lord, it was borrowed. This is no laughing matter. Yet I think for lots of us, as we read it, we think, like, what's the big deal? Just go and get another one from the hardware store. Uh, in fact, when I was out shopping with my son Thomas the other day, after about two minutes of not being able to find my car, he said, just go back in and get another one from the shops. That's what they're for. But this young prophet would surely say, with what? Israel was a poor country. And these prophets are so poor, they have to borrow equipment. And we need to remember that iron was expensive, very expensive. That the, the loss of this axe head was more like riding off a borrowed car that didn't have insurance. No wonder he cries out, oh no, my Lord, it was borrowed. As he watches the axe head fly across the air and land in the river, he despairs because he just has no ability to pay it back and could be facing indentured servitude to fix this debt. And so although it might seem trivial to us at first, this is a desperate situation of real need. And we've seen it time and time again in the book of Kings. God shows up to provide for his needy people. He's delivered them from death and drought and disease, now from debt and just plain difficulty. Without even prompting, Elisha asked, verse 6, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick, threw it there, and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. The man reached out his hand and took it. The iron floats. While this miracle may not lack the wow of raising the Shunammite son or the oomph of blinding a whole army that we're about to see, the miracle is no less profound. Because in it we see the God who cares deeply, who is present to provide for his people in the mundane, the the ordinary aspects of life, even the accidents of life. See, this story, it's funny and it's trivial only until it's you or I who are the ones facing debt or loss or the crushing consequences of our accidents and mistakes. But God knows, God cares, and he even provides for his needy people through the ins and outs of everyday life. Because did you notice that as the axe head flew flew through the air and into the river, it wasn't the whole company of prophets that was affected. 
Not everyone was going to be in debt. The building project wasn't even compromised. The loss and the need is of the individual believer. And I actually think this is the kind of thing that I struggle to believe and to accept unless it was written here for us. The creator of the whole universe, the one who sustains everything, is outside of time, cares and is involved in the intricacies of my everyday life. But it was actually Jesus who taught us to pray, give us our daily bread, even before teaching us to pray for our forgiveness. And so these great events that are written down here are to remind us, to persuade us that this is our God, the God who provides for us even in the small and seemingly simple things of life. As Ralph Davis, the great Old Testament Bible commentator, says, Do you see the God you have? Heaven is his home, the earth is his footstool, and your axe head matters to him. Part of the greatness of our God is that he does indeed care and attend to even the small problems and ordinary affairs of our life. So I wonder tonight, do you know this? Do you enjoy this? Do you take it seriously by daily and regular prayer and thankfulness? Whether it's the consequences of a mistake you made or just your fear, your loneliness, your God, our God, the God is not distant or removed and we can, we should enjoy the privilege of taking all of our lives to him. It's why actually saying grace regularly reminds us, grounds us in this reality because it's easy for us, perhaps even natural for us, to think that God doesn't know, God doesn't care. To see God as the kind of the CEO type who's only preoccupied with the big plans for the future, too distracted to notice the small needs of one little employee. But God himself calls us to not be anxious about anything, but to take everything to him in prayer. That in the words of 1 Peter, to throw all of our anxiety on him because he cares for us. He invites us to rest in him. In 1767, the great hymnist John Newton wrote this in a letter to his friend. Are you not amazed sometimes that you should have such a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinks of you, but let not all you feel discourage you. So don't let pride or laziness or a small view of God rob you of the joy and comfort and the amazement of throwing yourself upon the God who cares and provides. But the scene and mood quickly changes as we go from a prophet with an axe to invasion and armies covering the hills. From God's provision in the small to his protection in the big. In verse 8, we're plunged into the middle of the king of Aram at war with Israel, which is going to be the context for the next three chapters of two kings. And did you notice during the reading that no one other than Elisha is named in the event? We've got the king of Aram, probably Ben-Hadad II, and we've got the king of Israel, probably Jehoram. 
But the story is not about them. The focus is squarely on God and what he is doing as even the location names are left out. Verse 8, now the king of Aram was at war with Israel and after conferring with his officers, he, st- he said, I will set up my camp in such a such a place. As the king is talking tactics, he has one big problem. Elisha knows every move he makes, verse 9. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on that place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. God protects and spares Israel multiple times, and I think we can imagine how frustrating this would have been for the king of Aram, right? His reaction in verse 11 is not surprising at all. He is enraged. He calls his leadership team together and essentially says to them, who's the mole, okay? Who's working for the other team? Now, as often is the case in the book of 1 and 2 Kings, as the enemies of Israel and of God, or sometimes Israel themselves, as they reject or resist God's sovereignty, God's control, the events are kind of comical, if not ridiculous. As the furious king interrogates his officials about who is leaking information to the enemy time and time again, one of them pops up and says, oh yeah, I know why, verse 12. Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Seems like the kind of thing he could have brought up earlier, right? The king overlooks it, however. He sends out a search party in verse 13 to capture Elisha. He finds out that Elisha is in Dothan in verse 14, and then he sends his biggest and best army by night to surround the city. Do you see the irony and the comedy in that decision? The king thinks he can take Elisha by surprise when Elisha knows everything the king says, even in private. He tries to solve his problem of moving his troops by moving more troops. But all of this is to make the clear point of how easy it is for God to provide for and to protect his people. Nothing and no one is outside of his control, and God actually has a bit of a habit of frustrating the plans of his enemies. We see this, I think, hilariously in Acts chapter 5. The Jewish leaders arrest the apostles for preaching the gospel to only then have an angel show up, open their jail, and tend them out to keep telling everyone about it. But you can imagine, right, how confronting, how devastating it would be for God's people to read this story from captivity in Babylon, that time and time again they had refused to see and to respond to God for who he truly is and to give him what he deserved, people who had failed to see this reality, which is exactly the focus as the sun rises the next morning. The very best of the Aramean army has moved in during the night to capture Elisha and the overkill is very deliberate. It's a beautiful picture of how desperate the king has become by sending his whole army to capture little old Elisha. And in verse 15, we meet an unnamed servant of Elisha, perhaps Gehazi's replacement after the events of chapter 5 last week. 
And you can picture him. He walks into the kitchen, yawning and stretching as he puts on the kettle to make, it, to make the coffee. And as he gazes out the window, there's a squeal and maybe even a little wee. Like the riders of Rohan arriving at Ministereth, they are everywhere. Verse 15, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. What is your immediate reaction to being under threat, under the pump, or just overwhelmed? Whether you're being mocked and attacked for your Christian faith or it's just the pressure of an assignment or a work deadline, so often we, like this man, like this servant, we default to both fear and pragmatism. This army is both powerful and numerous. The two of them don't stand a chance. There is no escape. And so he says, what shall we do? What resources, what abilities do we have to overcome the situation? His fear, like ours, is the result of self-confidence and self-sufficiency being shattered. As Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Because we need to remember at this point that Elisha knows everything that the king plans, right? So the only reason that Elisha has been trapped is for God's own purposes. We see this plainly in Elisha's calm and collected reply. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Rather than shamed and disciplined or scolded, the servant is prayed for. Elisha prays that he would see reality, to see that because theirs is the true and living God, those with them far outnumber those against them. As Proverbs says, whoever trusts in the Lord is safe and he sees chariots and horses of fire suggesting they come from the very presence of God. This is an army of angels surrounding Elisha, the same ones we met back in chapter 2 that came to escort Elijah into heaven. It's what we heard in Psalm 125, the Lord always surrounds his people. In his panic and his fear, this servant had failed to remember or to comprehend their reality. Because notice that Elisha doesn't pray that they would come or even that they would appear, but that they would be seen and their reality embraced. Psalm 34 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Elisha knew that this was always the case. And so he prays that his servant might see and be both captured and comforted by this reality and not fear. And so true safety can only be found by clinging to, resting in and relying not on ourselves but on God to live in his care and in his presence. We need to see that the real danger for this servant is actually Spiritual, the threat is not the Aramean horses and chariots. 
The danger and threat is to forget the greatness of God who cares and is present. God's people are safe with him even when under attack. And this same reality is true for us as believers in Jesus. We always live in a spiritual battle. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Christians always live in a spiritual battle, a struggle. And then notice what Paul says next, verse 13, Therefore... Put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Put on the armour. Not find the armour, not search for it, not earn it. Put it on. God doesn't withhold protection, but generously gives it. Because what is the armour? Well, in verses 14 to 17, they are all things that God has already given his people in the gospel when we trust Jesus. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation. Not things God can give us, but God has given us. Putting on the armour of God is about knowing, enjoying and living in light of having every spiritual blessing, the indwelling of the Spirit, our new identity in Christ being set free from the fear of death. But the problem is that we, so often, like God's people actually always have, struggle to either remember, comprehend, or enjoy all we have by trusting in God. Put simply, we have the constant battle to see our God clearly, to enjoy and remember all we have through our relationship with him, and then to respond rightly. Over the past past month, I've been quite slowly, meticulously reading a book called Gentle and Lowly. It's The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. Great book. Uh, And this quote stood out to me. The Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God actually is. The Christian life is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. We have the natural ability to have a poor, unsatisfying, impoverished view of God. And we see this time and time again in the life of Israel. You know, when when things are hard, it's God's fault and his evil. But when things are good and prosperous, well, God's irrelevant and he's forgotten as pride takes over. And so just as Elisha prayed for his servant, we too must pray time and time again that we would know our God, to see him more clearly, to see all that we have in Christ so that we treasure him more deeply. Do you realise the depths and the wonder of your Christian identity? to know the riches of your hope. Do you know how profound and deep that is? That being saved by Jesus, to have him as Lord, is always bigger and better than you can actually imagine. And do you actually long for more? Because Paul models this in his letters, praying that believers would know God better 
that God would open the eyes of our hearts that we would know the hope we have in Jesus. And we need to do this through the heights of joy and pleasure just as much through the depths of despair. Whether we're in lockdown or conflict, a relationship breakdown or a health crisis, pray. Pray that you would grasp more and more who our God is and our safety, not in our circumstances, but in him. Which is actually what we get in the surprising conclusion to the king of Aram's attempt to capture Elisha. Though the hills are covered in the fiery horses, uh, they don't actually stop the Aramean army at all. Verse 18, as the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Just as Elisha prayed that his servant would see reality, God's enemies who are blind to reality are blind and they, what they experience is literally a blinding light, which doesn't necessarily remove their sight completely, but hinders or confuses it. And again, I think there's a bit of comedy in the scene that follows. The big, scary Aramean army, now visually dazed, come down the hill only to have Elisha greet them and essentially say, who are you looking for? Elisha, yeah, sure, I know the guy. Verse 19, he told them, this is not the road or the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to Samaria. He takes them on a 20-kilometer 20, 20 hike to the capital of Israel only to pray again, verse 20. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. Can you imagine their confusion and horror as they blinked and rubbed their eyes only to see themselves inside the enemy's capital, now surrounded by their army? What would they think? Well, we don't have to guess what the king of Israel was thinking. When he saw the enemy's army gifted into his hands, verse 21, when the king saw them, he asked, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? He is delightfully surprised and smells victory, seeking permission to slaughter them all. But I'm sure he was very surprised by Elisha's answer. He wants a bloodbath, but he ends up throwing a banquet. Verse 22, do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he, they, he sent them away. And they returned to their master. So the bands of, from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. It is a great scene, isn't it? You can only imagine their fear and dread as their sight returned and they found themselves in the enemy's capital. But as they comprehended their imminent doom, the doors fly open and out comes the banquet as the enemy now serves them some wine. In verse 13, the king of Aram had sent his servants to literally go and see in their search for Elisha. Can you imagine his confusion as his army returns, not only without Elisha, but jolly, crumbs in their beards, full bellies, and in complete 
awe of the God who blinded them so they could truly see his mercy. It's a great scene. You can't help but wonder, what did they say to the king upon their return? Did you find Elisha? Well, we found him all right. It's no wonder in verse 23, the bands of Aram no longer raided for Israel, even if in verse 24 it doesn't last that long. But this is unheard of, right? Unthinkable kindness to your enemy. But that's exactly the point. As God's enemies walk away spared judgment and satisfied, God's people, Israel, are being told that he will do exactly the same for them. We need to remember that as they first read this book and looked back on these events, they did so from Babylon, living in exile as those who had rejected and ignored God and were now experiencing his judgment. They were people so much like us that are good at forgetting, ignoring God, not giving him the love and loyalty and praise he deserves, people worthy of judgment. And so the safety that they and we need above all else is the welcome and acceptance of God himself. The God who is in complete control, who is powerful and sovereign, we are not truly safe unless he is merciful to accept us. But that is exactly the God we meet in the Bible. That's the God who has revealed himself to us in the coming of Jesus. That's why true safety can only be found in God alone, not simply because of his great power, but the greatness of his love and mercy. As Dane Orland says, when God deigns to lavish goodness on his people, he does it with a certain naturalness reflective of the depths of who he is. For God to be merciful is for God to be God. And so this glimpse of God's care and presence, his sovereignty and mercy in 2 Kings 6, it's just a taste of the mercy of God on display through the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we find true safety through his death and resurrection, not to spare us from anything hard or scary in this world, but something so much better and deeper. 1 Peter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As God's sovereignty and mercy are on display through Jesus, as he goes to the cross in our place, as he rises from death with all authority and offers life to all who trust him, we are assured that with him we are truly safe, whatever our circumstances, because through Jesus we see God cares, God is with us, and God is merciful. Listen to how Paul puts it in the great words of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that true safety? To know that not even death itself will separate you from the love of God because in the gospel we share in Jesus' victory over death? To know that he is with you, that he cares for you, even down to the mundane and the ordinary parts of life. And that nothing can happen to you, not even death itself, is outside of his control, his power, and his goodness to you. That is the kind of safety, the kind of comfort our friends and our neighbours, our city, our country, our world is aching for, searching for. And so the question is, do you see it? Just as with Elisha's servant or the Aramean army, we need God to open our eyes, removing our blindness, so we can see and savour this reality. And so if you are not yet a believer in Jesus watching tonight, someone that knows and enjoys this safety, pray that God would give it to you, to give you eyes to see, Call out to Jesus who is not far from anybody. And if you have questions, concerns, if get in touch. Ask them. Even sign up for our Christianity Explored course. Come to see clearly and to know his love, his care and mercy. To see Jesus and to enjoy living hope. But if you've already done that, if you're a believer in Jesus listening tonight, The wonderful events of 2 Kings 6 show us that the clearer the sight we have of who our God is revealed to us in Jesus, his care and his presence, his power and his mercy, the clearer that is for us, the less we will fear the troubles and challenges of life. And I imagine for lots of us we live in scary times. There is a lot of uncertainty We have health challenges, loss of work, isolation from friends and family, many things to cause us fear and anxiety. We too must pray that we not just see but live in light of God's rich mercy poured out to us in Jesus. To know his intimate care and provision every day his presence and protection that makes us more than conquerors, for not even death can now rob us from our safety in Christ who has risen from the dead. As one author put it, Christianity is not an umbrella that keeps us from getting wet, but an anchor for our soul through any storm. All we have in Christ is always bigger and better than we can imagine. So day by day, we must pray, we must long 
for God to show us again, to show us more of all we have in Christ. Let's look to, let's cling to Jesus in whom we are truly safe. As Dane Ortland says to finish his great book, the Christian life boils down to two steps. Step one, go to Jesus. Step two, see step one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good word tonight, that you are the God who cares, the God who is with us, the God who is merciful. We thank you for Jesus, whose life, death and resurrection assures us that we are never separated from your love. And we pray, please work in us now that we would know him more fully, trust him more deeply, treasure him more greatly. We thank you that in Jesus we are truly safe, now and forever. We thank you, we praise you, in Jesus' name. Amen.